Gresham College presents Poetry and Exile, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, by Professor Belinda Jack. Well, good evening and welcome, and welcome back. It's very nice to see some familiar faces from last year. Um, we've been listening when you came in to Beethoven's String Quartet Number 15 in A minor, Opus 132, which Beethoven wrote in... 1825, so just a couple of years before his death. And the reason why I wanted that music to be playing before my lecture is explained, I think, by this letter that Eliot wrote to his writer friend Stephen Spender in 1931. So many years, really, before he came to the quartets. And in the letter he wrote, I have Beethoven's A minor quartet, number 15, on the gramophone, and I find it quite inexhaustible to study. There is a sort of heavenly, or at least more than human, gaiety about some of his later things, which one imagines might come to oneself as the fruit of reconciliation and relief after immense suffering. I should like to get something of that into verse before I die. Now, I think Eliot did get something of that into verse about 10 years later in his four quartets. They were published in 1944 as, as the quartets, but the collection's made up of four previously published poems. Um, the first is Bernd Norton, um, which was published as part of Eliot's collective poems 1909-1935. The second, East Coker, was published in 1940. The Dry Salvages, um, pronunciation may sound unlikely, but Eliot tells us it should rhyme with assuages, so not salvages, but dry salvages, in 1941, and Little Gidding in 1942. But despite this serial publication history, they belong um, very much together. Now, in my blurb for tonight's lecture, I mentioned the famous difficulty of Eliot's poetry, um, and perhaps nowhere more so than in Four Quartets. And I wanted to begin by just thinking a bit about what we mean by difficulty in poetry. I think a lot of young people, um, it's nice to see some young people here this evening, um, would say that they find poetry much more difficult than the novel. Now, a lot of writers have written about what constitutes poetic difficulty. And I just want to read some quotations. The American writer Joyce Carol Oates um, sees difficulty as almost part of the definition of good poetry. And she writes, prose, it might be speculated, is discourse. Poetry, ellipsis, and the word is from the Greek word ellipsis, which means omission or falling short. So prose is discourse, poetry, ellipsis. Prose is spoken aloud, poetry overheard. The one is presumably articulate and social, a shared language, the voice of communication. The other is private, elusive, teasing, sly, idiosyncratic as the spider's delicate web, a kind of witchcraft. It's rather wonderful. I think whenever poets try to write about poetry, they become highly poetic. Now, of course, the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas said something very similar. You're back with the mystery of having been moved by words. The best craftsmanship always leaves holes and gaps, 
so that something that is not in the poem can creep, crawl, flash, or thunder in. Now, what both these poets are pointing to about great poetry is this idea of gaps. Carol Oates calls it omissions, ellipsis. Dylan Thomas calls it gaps and holes. And this, I think, accounts for something which a poet that I find particularly difficult, um, Geoffrey Hill, claims is the great um, democratic aspect of poetry. Now, you might think that difficult poetry with its gaps and ellipses is going to be elitist. Geoffrey Hill turns this round and says, no, that's what constitutes its democracy. And what he says is, and I quote, difficult poetry is the most democratic because you're doing your audience the honor of supposing that they are intelligent human beings. If you write as if you had to placate them or entice their lack of interest, then I think you're making condescending assumptions about people. I mean, people are not fools, but so much of the populist poetry of today treats people as if they were fools. Another difficulty with poetry is the way in which poets use words in ways that invigorate the language. Poets' words always mean something slightly other from what the dictionary might tell us they mean. Um, Eli Kamarov writes, poets are soldiers who liberate words from the steadfast possession of definition. And Mallarmé, the great French symbolist poet, said it's the job of poetry to clean up our word-clogged reality by creating silences around things. So we've got Oates's idea of ellipsis, we've got Dylan Thomas's ideas of gaps, and we've got Mallarmé's ideas about silences. Now, how does that really connect with this idea of poetry, difficult poetry, being democratic? Well, I think these gaps and silences and omissions leave a creative space for us as readers of poetry or as listeners to poetry. We're not told what to think by poems. We're given a space uh, in which to, to some degree, connect our own experience with the poet's words. So if difficulty is the sine qua non of, of great poetry, and I think it probably is, then how do we deal with it? How do we engage with it? And in particular, how do we engage with it in Eliot's four quartets? Well, as the quotation from Eliot's letter to Stephen Spender that I started with at the beginning, where he's talking about Beethoven's wonderful quartet, Eliot was fascinated by the parallels between poetry and music. And, of course, the title of the quartets is an explicit reference to a musical form. Um, the four quartets, um, each is made up of five movements, which is also true of the Beethoven quartet that we were listening to. But music is arguably the most abstract of all art forms. And yet, we don't seem to talk as much about the difficulty of music. We don't say that a particular Mozart symphony is difficult but we do talk a lot about the difficulty of poetry. But if music is actually more abstract than poetry, then you'd think people would talk more about the difficulty of music. And one thing that I'd like to suggest is that for a poet like Eliot, it's much better to engage with his poetry more as you might engage with music. In other words, aware of rhythm and sound and above all, form.
And form is, is, I think, brought into sharpest definition by Eliot when he says, only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. Stillness there rather like the silence of Mallarmé or the gaps or, um, or the ellipsis. And these patterns suggest emotional correlatives, just as we, are, we go through a series of emotional moods when we listen to music. So the same is true of hearing um, or reading, but preferably hearing, I think, um, Eliot's four quartets. It might be melancholy, it might be gaiety, it might be anxiety, it might be fulfillment, it might be peace. And in his essay, The Music of Poetry, from 1942, Eliot also emphasized that both poetry and music involve rhythm and structure, he wrote, the use of recurrent themes is as natural to poetry as to music. There are possibilities for verse which bear some analogy to the development of a theme by different groups of instruments. There are possibilities for transitions in a poem comparable to the different movements of a quartet. There are possibilities of contrapuntal arrangement of subject matter. And that's in his work on Poetry and Poets, page 38. So let's start with the idea of recurrent themes. Four Quartets is often described as a collection of poems that explore time, that, that the principal theme is the theme of time. What do we understand by time? How do we as human beings live in time, aware of a past, uh, uh, in anticipation of a future? And of course, poetry exists in time in the same way as music. Um, this isn't true of the visual arts. It isn't true... Um, I mean, it's true to some degree of film and, and theatre, but when we engage with a poem, we engage with it in time, and we follow a, a move from one moment to a later moment. And the same is true when we listen to music. It takes us through time. And the ways in which the images and the themes come and go in time is analogous to movements of departure and arrival, and I think from ideas of exile and a return home. So just as a theme in a piece of music will recur later in the piece, so a theme in a poem can return later. We have this sense of having been moved away from that theme and then we return home to it. The quartets explore, as I say, our relationship with time, but also with space and with the divine. But I don't think one needs to have any faith uh, to be deeply moved by the quartets. And I think that first quotation um, from the letter to Spender highlights that, where he talks about a more-than-human gaiety as, an, uh, as a, an option rather than as heavenly. So if we can understand what something more-than-human is, we don't necessarily have to understand the more mystical um, religious side, I think. And Eliot um, was a very devout Anglo-Catholic, um, but he was hugely well-read um, and very much a polymath. And so there are other religions that are blended into the four quartets, um, philosophical, poetic works from both Eastern and Western uh, traditions. And there are allusions to, for example, the Bhagavad Gita, um, pre-Socratic philosophers, um, the Spanish mystic, um, St. John of the Cross, and the Christian mystic Julian of Norwich. Poetic language doesn't tell us about certain experiences, or theories, or feelings. Poetry provides linguistic prompts which dispose the reader to experience something similar 
to what the poet may have experienced or imagined, along with its accompanying emotional mood. And this is where, in not being told, we're left these gaps and silences where we can create, in an engagement with the poetry, something that means something to us. Now, the way in which Eliot thought this happened um, was by means of what he called an objective correlative. And this is how he describes it. The only way of expression, expressing emotion in the form of art is by finding an objective correlative. In other words, a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which will be the formula of that particular emotion, such that when the external facts, which must terminate in sensory experience, are given, the emotion is immediately evoked. So it acts as a kind of prompt um, to the reader. Now, this idea of the objective correlative bears close resemblance to the work of the French symbolists. And Eliot's greatest debt, he said, um, was not to an English language poet, but in fact to one of the French symbolists, Jules Laforgue. And he wrote, of Laforgue, I can say he was the first to teach me how to speak, to teach me the poetic possibilities of my own idiom of speech. And a decade later, in 1960, he wrote, I have written about Baudelaire, but nothing about Jules Laforgue, to whom I owe more than to any poet in any language. And I think Laforgue's use of philosophical ideas, the way he blends those into his poetry, and the certain distance, emotional distance of his poems, um, I think are very much present in Eliot's work. Again, he said, the form which I began to write in 1908 or 1909 was directly drawn from the study of Laforgue together with the later Elizabethan drama. And I do not know anyone who started from exactly that point. Elsewhere, he said, the kind of poetry that I needed to teach me the use of my own voice did not exist in English at all. It was only found in French. And Leonard Unger concludes, insofar as Eliot started from an exact point, it was exclusively and emphatically the poetry of Laforgue. Elsewhere, Eliot um, makes it very clear his debt to Baudelaire and to Dante. And I wonder whether when he says how much Laforgue mattered to him, it was because what Laforgue was doing was really completely different from anything that any English language poet was doing whether it's actually to do with the experience of reading poetry in a language which isn't your own native mother tongue. And again, I think this idea of exile that I want to explore as a way into four quartets comes into this because we are, in a sense, exiled when we speak in a foreign language. And it's in that place of exile that we have a perspective on language that we don't have when we speak our own language. Our own language is so familiar, so much of it, so much of the idiom we don't really hear anymore. Whereas if you read in a foreign language, the way the language is working is much, much more foregrounded. And I think that may have mattered more to Eliot than, than anything else. An over-familiarity with language leads us to speak in clichés. Um, and of course, one of the things that poets are doing is actually to reinvigorate clichés that have become all floppy and baggy. Um, interestingly, when Eliot, in his poetry, because his poems are always in part about poetry and how poetry works or doesn't work, um, when he wants to describe linguistic failure in poetry, it's often in a language which suggests this idea of being exiled from language. So in East Coker, 
Um, he says, for example, that was a way of putting it, not very satisfactory, a periphrastic study in a worn-out poetical fashion. So here is poetry talking about its own failure, periphrastic meaning unnecessarily long-winded. Um, and again, at the end of East Coker, he writes, one has only learnt to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say. Here, I think you could say that the poet is expressing an exile from language, an exile from, from meaning, an exile from sense. Now, the first movement of the first quartet, Bert Norton, begins by proposing various possible ideas about time, about what might have been, in a language re reminiscent, really, of philosophical discussion. I think when you first read uh, the four quartets, you think, well, I thought this was a poem, and this seems to me to be philosophical speculation. But this is then followed by a rendering of the same concerns about time, but in a more poetical and figurative language. So the same theme, which is the puzzle of time, is first presented in philosophical language and then is explored in a much more poetic and figurative language. And this pattern of the more prosaic to the more poetic recurs throughout the quartets, as we'll see in a minute. As Eliot wrote, in a poem of any length, there must be transitions between passages of lesser and greater intensity to give a rhythm of fluctuating emotion essential to the musical structure of the whole. And the passages of lesser intensity will be in relation to the level on which the total poem operates, prosaic, so that in the sense implied by that context, it may, may be said that no poet can write a poem of amplitude unless he is a master of the prosaic. Now, amplitude was a word I thought I knew, um, but I now realize that I don't know it. <laughs> um, so this uh, diagram uh, is, is supposed to enlighten us as to what amplitude is, and I'm afraid my physics is very, very poor indeed. Um, the definition of amplitude is the objective measurement of the degree of change, positive or negative, in atmospheric pressure, the compression and rarefaction, which is apparently the opposite of compression, of air molecules caused by sound waves. Now, I'm not going to try and describe it any, any further than that, but I think what Eliot is saying is that you have to have these modulations in a long poem. You can't have intensity from beginning to end. It needs to go in these sort of waves. Um, and I think it's interesting to see this diagram because you could almost say that, that everything that's above the dotted line is the poetic. So you begin with a high poetic point, then you go down to the prosaic, and then you go back up to... Um, and so although it's a, a representation of something scientific, I think it maps very well onto the rhythm um, of Eliot's four quartets. So I'd also like just to think a little bit more about the idea of exile in relation to the four quartets. I mean, you could even talk about this, I think, in terms of departures and returns. It's a very emotive term uh, to be sent into exile, to be living in exile, um, to be an exile in your own country. Um, and it has a long classical history, this idea of exile. It comes from the Latin exor, meaning a banished person. Seneca's Medea blames Jason, not just for exiling her, but for sending her off into exile without providing a place, 
And she says, you order exile, but you do not give a place for exile. And St. Augustine, whom Eliot knew very well, um, as he knew so much, um, St. Augustine wrote, I found myself wandering far from you, with a capital Y, in a region of unlikeness. I found myself wandering far from you in a region of unlikeness, which surely describes exile. And of course, in Christian theology, exile plays a very important part, exile from the Garden of Eden, um, those who are sent into exile, Jesus' chosen exile in the desert, and perhaps above all, the idea that human life is to some degree about an exile from God and that our spiritual journey will be uh, from exile to an ultimate homecoming. Eliot was himself, of course, an exile. Um, he was an expat. He chose to live in exile and became a naturalized Brit. But he was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And in his memoir, his friend Robert Sencourt comments that the young Eliot, and I quote, would often curl up in the window seat behind an enormous book, setting the drug of dreams against the pain of living. Here he is, the young Eliot. And Eliot credited his hometown with fueling his literary vision. He wrote, it is self-evident that St. Louis affected me more deeply than any, environment has, any other environment has ever done. I feel that there is something in having passed one's childhood beside the big river, which is incommunicable to those people who have not. I consider myself fortunate to have been born here rather than in Boston or New York or London. And here is that river. Now, Elliot was on study leave in Marburg in Germany um, when Germany invaded Belgium on the 3rd of August, 1914. And Elliot packed his bags and headed for London. He spent a brief period at Oxford, which he disliked very much, and returned to London, where he spent the majority of his life. So, back to the poetry and back to Bert Norton. Um, time to grasp the nettle. So... The title refers to a 17th century manor house near Camden, which Eliot visited in the summer of 1934. And time, the obvious central organizing subject of four quartets, is introduced at the outset, and the manner in which it's broached is quasi-philosophical and prosaic. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Ideas are then further developed, again prosaically, in a single grammatically complete sentence. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. And then a final sentence that brings time and place into relationship what might have been point, yeah, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. So is this really poetry or is this very difficult philosophical speculation? Well, I think we can find some convincing paraphrases for these final lines. What's always present is our awareness of our mortality our awareness that our end point is death, and at the point where we contemplate death, we'll no doubt be aware of what might have been, 
as well as what has been. But then the mood changes dramatically. And here, I think we should listen to Eliot himself uh, reading. I just need to go back. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. But to what purpose? Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. So I think in terms of objective correlatives, these opening lines of the first quartet have ideas and images and their associated emotions. I'd suggest that thoughts of what might have been creates a mood of regret. Um, the lack of understanding, I do not know a sense of intellectual anguish, the memory of happiness, sense of loss and accompanying mel melancholy. We feel as though we, like the poet, have been exiled from the rose garden. And there is the rose garden of Bert Norton. I'm not really sure whether I should have included this because of course what matters is the imaginative rose garden, uh, not the rose garden um, at Bert Norton, but it is very beautiful. So the structure, as I say, of the four quartets means that themes recur in slightly altered forms and these frame the first theme as first iterated. The first movement of the first quartet ends time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. So here we have an inversion. Time present and time past of the first line has been reiterated through this inversion and variation, both terms that one would use to explain musical form. Time past and time future, three lines from the end of the movement. So the modifiers perhaps and if no longer occur. And this allows for another interpretation and I quote, such a view of time follows logically, inexorably, from the idea of an omniscient God, whose omniscience necessarily entails knowing the future, as Calvin's concept of predestination was ready to acknowledge. And this is Craig Rain's reading from his excellent book, which is entitled simply T.S. Eliot. And Rain also points out that Eliot explores ideas of time in um, a number of works, um, I suppose most famously um, in The Wastelands when he has Ethelbert declare, there's some new notion about time, what says that the past, what's behind you, is what's going to happen in the future, being as the future has already happened. I haven't had the time to get the hang of it yet. <laughs> and Valerie Elliott reported that Eliot also thought of adding an epigraph from Dickens' Pickwick Papers to Four Quartets, and the epigraph might have been, what a rum thing time is, ain't it, Neddy? Now, these, you could say, are both affirmations um, of a world ordered 
by an omniscient God. But they're also an affirmation of something not unlike quantum theory, which I'm not now going to try to explain. What really matters here, I think, is how these ideas generate what Eliot described as fluctuating emotion, which is also, of course, fundamental to our experience of music. So after the opening lines, we have the footfalls echo in the memory down the passage we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. So we've moved from this prosaic, philosophical, speculative register of language to a figurative register. And we've also moved from the abstract in those first few lines to the, I'm going to say, quasi-concrete. But it turns out that the two are very closely related. Footfalls are the sound of our feet as we move from place to place through time. Footfalls being footsteps, yeah? An echo is a trace, the tangible presence of an absence. When we hear an echo, it's the vestige of a sound that's passed. And the passage we did not take and the door we, did not, we never opened are metaphors for what in the earlier lines was described as what might have been. So the abstract idea of what might have been in the speculative prosaic first iteration is then described as the door was, we never opened and the passage we did not take and so on. So syntax here is intriguing because the second and third lines describe negatives, the passage we did not take, the door we never opened. And yet they could be read as parenthetical, leaving two parallel statements in the affirmative, footfalls echo in the memory into the rose garden, my words echo thus in your mind. Now the rose garden is one of Eliot's key images, um, which is probably why I should have um, not included that image of the garden at Mount Norton. The rose garden or roses or petals occur numerous times in the four quartets and they signify an ordered place that has existed over time. You can't create a garden. Well, actually, nowadays, I think you can create a garden overnight, but um, most of us think of a garden as something that has developed over the course of time. But it becomes an objective correlative in four quartets for a place of epiphany, a place of beauty, of tranquility, of bliss, and an unearthly ecstasy. I mean, again, it could be the heavenly or it could be the more than human gaiety, depending on your faith or lack of faith. So the quasi-philosophical words of lines 1 to 10 have been transposed in lines 11 to 15. Time present and time past exist in the idea of the echo, which is the present manifestation of something past. The idea of a perpetual possibility is enacted in the syntax of lines 11 to 15 in the passage we did not take, the door we never opened. But nevertheless, the reader is led into the rose garden. But this isn't the culminating point of the lines. There's a coda. Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. The subject of the verb, disturbing, present participle form, is my words. My words echo, disturbing the dust. How can the echo of words disturb dust? In terms of causal physical effect, it's tenuous, but no doubt physically, not physically impossible. The section ends with the ultimate epistemological negation. I do not know. Syntactically, this can be read as the conclusion of the expression, to what purpose, I do not know, or a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. 
So do, what do we make of these opening 18 lines? Structurally, we've identified lines 10, that's 1 to 5 and 6 to 10, as a unit which explores twice over in quasi-philosophical prosaic conversational language, time, past, present and future, and non-event and event, what might have been and what has been. And then we have 11 to 15 and 16 to 18 that form two more uh, units. Um, 11 to 15 with the quasi-tangible footfalls, which are in such strong contrast to the abstractions of the first 10 lines. But that sense of the tangible, what we can actually touch and feel, is dispelled by their existence. The footfalls are only echoing in the memory. And the memory, of course, provides the experience in the present of experience in the past. The, me the memory makes the past present. And an echo, as I said earlier, is, is also a trace. It's the tangible presence of an absence, the original sound that is no longer. The dust on a bowl of rose leaves is re redolent both of time past. Dust, which I'm horrified to learn from one of my children, is mostly made up of dead skin, accrues over time. But also how matter breaks down. The rose leaves are presumably a pour pourri, the pourri coming from the, from the French to rot. So they're really leaves that are dead and rotting. They're in a state of decay, as all things organic are. Both the dust and the rose leaves are also traces, vestiges. They're also, in a sense, an echo. So in brief, we move from abstraction and speculation to a, a language of largely concrete nouns, footfalls, the pashes, the door, the rose garden, the dust, the bowl, the rose leaves. Yet the way in which these concrete nouns work within the syntax of the poem, um, their existence is perhaps only a perpetual possibility because the footfalls are only an echo and so on. Now, in the second movement of Bert Norton, Time again is a central theme, but it's here it's more a mystical experience of time that's explored. And it's explored by means of the simile, the still point. Um, the still point of the turning world. The still point of the turning world. And I think we can understand this as an axis or an axle. The axle of a wheel, somewhere in the center, there is a still point as the wheel turns, the still point of the turning world. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church at Smokefall, be remembered, involved with past and future, only through time, time is conquered. So here what's being explored is the idea that mystical experience appears to happen, it takes place outside time, but we're only conscious of it, we can only recollect it when we're back in the mundane, time-bound world. And in Bert Norton, the, the fleeting nature of time um, is, is associated very closely with the experience of children, um, with an innocent experience of time. Uh, here are the, the final lines um, of the first quartet. Sudden in a shaft of sunlight, 
even while the dust moves. There rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage. Quick now, here now, always. Ridiculous, the waste sad time stretching before and after. And I think it's repetition here, which is the objective correlative for the extreme excitement of children when they're playing the quick now, here now, always. Now, in a sense, this is the last clear statement of what Bert Norton is about, but it echoes what we experienced in the second half of the first movement as a shaft of sunlight suddenly emerges from the clouds and the deserted garden seems to come to life. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of the heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Time and the bell have buried the day. The black cloud carries the sun away. Now, there's a story about the pools or ponds um, at Burnt Norton, um, and again, it may be a mistake to have this visual image, um, but the story goes that a child actually drowned in one of the ponds, um, and so they were filled in. So, on to East Coker. Well, East Coker, oh, there's the lotus, so that's the lotus rising, um, just in case you're not familiar with it. So here we are at East Coker. This is a manor house in Somerset near Yeovil. And it was from here that Eliot's ancestors left to go to America in 1667. The house symbolizes a new beginning in the poem and raises ideas about the circularity of time, the fact that time um, uh, moves in this sort of extraordinary um, circle. And Mary, Queen of Scots's motto, en ma fin, in mon commencement, in my end is, is my beginning, is inverted. And the quartet begins, in my beginning is my end, in succession houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field or a factory or a bypass, old stone to new building, old timber to new fires, old fires to ashes, and ashes to the earth, which is already flesh, fur, and feces bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf. Houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loosened pane and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered arras woven with a silent motto. An arras is a wall hanging made of sort of rich tapestry fabric. It's often used to conceal an alcove. Now, these lines are time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loose and pain and so on uh, allude to Ecclesiasticus, um, Ecclesiastes 11, uh, 2, 1 to 7, um, which is often used as part of funeral, um, funeral settings. So, and and, and that, those lines are to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. So again, these lines are essentially about time and human life as the passage through time. And the idea of exile returns again in East Coker. So this is the, the upper half of the screen. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into a dark, the dark, the vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, the merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, statesmen, and the rulers. 
distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors all go into the dark, and dark the sun and moon, and the Almanac de Gotha, which was a handbook of royalty um, in Europe, and the Stock Exchange Gazette, the Directory of Directors, and cold the sense and lost the motive for action. And surely that line is essentially saying, why are we here? We're all going to die. And this is death as the ultimate exile from life. And here Eliot draws on Milton's Samson Agonistes. Oh, dark, 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 amid the blaze of noon, a coverably dark, total eclipse, without all hope of day. The sun to me is dark and silent as the moon when she deserts the night, hid in her vacant interlunar cave. Now, in East Coca, time's also explored in terms of its relationship with space at the end of the first movement. Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. Now, this may be a reference to the sea his ancestors crossed to the new world. The dawn winds certainly suggest the possibility of travel. But there are also passages um, in East Coker. Um, this is from the final lines of the fifth movement that are much more explicitly confessional. Um, I mean that in a, in a religious sense. Old men ought to be explorers. Here or there does not matter. We must be still and still moving. And that strikes me as an extraordinary line. We must be still and still moving. Because what Eliot's doing is he's bringing those two different stills into relationship. Still as an adjective, meaning not moving, and still as an adverb, meaning um, yet. And so there's fantastic ambiguity, and I think it's one of the classic cases of a, of a gap in the poetry that, as Dillas Thomas said, let something else rush in. We must be still and still moving. Still moving, but it's oxymoronic. Still is the opposite of moving. Into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion, through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise, in my end is my beginning. And of course, our ancestors, in a sense, were sea-dwelling creatures. So here the suggestion seems to be that our true reality exists only in deeper communion, perhaps with God if we're believers, perhaps with ourselves if we aren't, or perhaps with the world. So we come to the dry salvages, the uh, group of rocks that Eliot used to boat to um, as a child. And by the end of this quartet, the exploration of time is located in consideration of our futile attempts to transgress the boundaries of time, um, what we might call sort of false exiles, pastimes and drugs and features of the press, and always will be, some of them especially, when there is distress of nations and perplexity, whether on the shores of Asia or in the Edgware Road. Pastimes, drugs, and features of the press are presented as equally pernicious. We read sensational news stories in part as an escape from our own worries, um, from our own lives. And this passage picks up on a line first introduced in East Coker, the wonderful line, distracted from distraction by distraction. And here is the line in context. Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker 
over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction. Um, I'm sure that if you're going home on the underground, you will see people distracting themselves with the metro, distracted by distraction from distraction. Filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration, men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before time and after. Now, resolution, of course, comes in the fourth quartet in Little Gidding. Um, Little Gidding, um, of course, is um, a religious community that was, or at Little Gidding, there was a religious community that was founded in 1625 by Nicholas Ferrar um, with a couple of his siblings. Um, um, that was in uh, 1625, and it survived till 1657, and it was a... Uh, an Anglo-Catholic religious community, um, and they structured their days around the offices of the Book of Common Prayer. And it was a place that Eliot visited and was deeply moved by. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. And intimations of perfection or completion or the ecstasy of salvation are conjured by means of analogies with language. Every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others. The word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce, commerce of the old and new. The common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word, precise but not pedantic, the complete consort dancing together. Now, in Burnt Norton, we'd read, humankind cannot bear very much reality. But by little gidding, progress has been made, and we reach a point of resolution. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And that, of course, is in parenthesis. And so here we might say the enigma of sin, of human suffering, of human life, is resolved in these two lines. When the tongues of flame are infolded into the crowned knot of fire. Here we hear clear echoes of Eliot's amazing translation of Dante's Paradiso. Within its depths I saw in gathered, bound by love in one mass, the scattered leaves of the universe, substance and accidents and their relations as though together fused so that what I speak of is one simple flame. And I think it's extraordinary the way Eliot has condensed um, the Dante, which is, is long and periphrastic in some ways, um, into these two lines when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the knotted crown, uh, the crowned knot of fire. So to finish, what I'd like to do is to um, read some um, interesting um, tributes to um, Eliot and his quartets, um, and then hit, uh, listen to Eliot reading the last movement of the final quartet. Um, and what I'd like you to do is to try to hear uh, some of this sense of form, structure, and pattern, um, which is what makes the quartet so wonderful. Stravinsky, uh, the composer, 
described Eliot, and I quote, not only as a great sorcerer of words, but as the very key keeper of the language. McLuhan, another critic of Eliot's, um, writes, to purify the dialect of the tribe and to open the doors of perception by discovering a host of new poetic themes and rhythms was the especial achievement of T.S. Eliot. He gave us back our language enlivened and refreshed by new contacts with many other tongues. And here, McLuhan's referring to the lines in Little Gidding, um, since our common concern was speech, and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight, let me disclose the gifts reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. And of course, that crown um, reappears at the end of Little Gidding. Uh, Frank Commode um, talks about the way in which Eliot presents us with, with a pattern which, and I quote, the poet retreats into. But the poem is a great poem because it will not force us to follow him. It makes us wiser without committing us. It joins the mix of our own minds. It joins the mix of our own minds. And this, is, this ties in with the points I was making earlier about these gaps and ellipsis and the way in which a great poem engages us in a creative activity. It doesn't simply tell us something. It makes us wiser without committing us. It joins the mix of our own minds, but it does not tell us what to believe. The poem resists an imposed order. It is part of its greatness that it can do so. Rajan writes, another of Eliot's critics, the birth of meaning takes place in a manner both creative and ancient. Poetry cannot report the event. It must be the event, lived through in a form that can speak about itself while remaining wholly itself. This is a feat at least as difficult as it sounds. And if the poem succeeds in it, it is because however much it remembers previous deaths by drowning, it creates its own life against its own thrust of questioning. But I think Alvarez, in a book called The School of Dunn, um, uh, and who calls Eliot a supreme interpreter of meditated experience, provides perhaps the most lucid analysis of Eliot's method. He says, the moments of greatest intensity have, as Eliot presents them, a certain obliqueness, an elusiveness, a controlling detachment. It's a poetry apart. He is, in some ways, a meditative poet, but this does not mean a poet who deals in abstractions. Well, he does to some degree. Um, Eliot's meditations are meditations on experience in which the abstractions belong as much as the images. They are all a part of his particular cast of mind, the meaning he gives to past experience. His direct affirmations are always summings up of his style, concentrations for which the rest of his verse appears as so many hints. And finally, at moments when four quartets truly baffle us, I think we can be comforted by Dame Helen Gardner, who was another great Eliot critic. And she wrote, it is better in reading poetry of this kind to trouble too little about the meaning than to trouble too much. If there are passages whose meaning seems elusive, where we feel we're missing the point, we should read on preferably aloud. We must find the meaning in the reading. So bearing in mind this quotation um, 
which you heard earlier, only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. I suggest you close your eyes and listen to Eliot reading the fifth and final movement, Little Gidding of the Four Quartets. We die with the dying. See, they depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. A people without history is not redeemed from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So, while the light fails on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now and England. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Thank you very much. For all information, please visit gresham.ac.uk.